0: Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church on uh, this, the first weekend without football in a long time. Uh, special greeting to those joining us upstairs and at the, um, at the Crossroads campus in Highland Park as well. So um, our perspective on things matters a lot. Uh, I have got some images here, if we can pull up the first one. Is this a bunny rabbit or a duck? Is this uh, an old woman or a young woman? Is this a series of chess pieces or of people, right? You could spend hours online looking at these if you would like. Uh, I went looking for some different images about perspective because I believe that our perspective on things matters a great deal. And I want to... uh, Uh, I want to circle around to that, so let me just step back and say this is week two of a series on the Olivet Discourse, which is the the last big teaching moment that Jesus has before he dies. It happens on Wednesday night of Holy Week. So on Thursday, he is betrayed. It's the last supper he's betrayed. They, they go out uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. The s- disciples won't stay awake. He's arrested. There's a charade of a trial. And uh, from this moment, when we look at the Olivet Discourse, until, uh, until his death, it's about 36 hours. So things are heating up at this point. And, um, and he is teaching about the temple. As they leave the temple and walk up the Mount of Olives where he has been staying. All these people have come into uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. There's no place for them to stay inside the city, so they're sleeping, camping out on the Mount of Olives. And during that last few moments, as they're leaving the temple, one of the disciples has some positive things to say about the physical building, and this sets Jesus off on this teaching moment. So remember the building that we're talking about is the the second temple. And so this was being built by Herod the Great. We're about 60 years into the 83 years it takes to build this temple. 10,000 people working on it at a time. It's massive and monstrous in ways we can hardly comprehend. And uh, I said last week that Jesus didn't like the temple. He wasn't a fan of the temple. That's an overstatement. Some of you sent me emails pointing that out, so thank you very much. Jesus was the new temple, right? The temple was the place that you went, because this is where God and man sort of met on earth. Jesus is the new intersection of God and man. The temple is the place that you went to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is the new place you go to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is replacing this building. So when the disciples comment on it, it's been a year since they've seen it, they go, wow, this is amazing, This this is big. Jesus says... Well, you know what? It's just actually a bunch of rocks, and uh, they're coming down. And they're like, whoa, when is this going to happen? What are you talking about? Like, this is the end of everything. And so this sets off this teaching that Jesus will give about uh, the end of everything. And, uh, And I said, look, I read it out of Luke 21. I said, this is a heavy passage. It's foreboding. It's got all kinds of negative stuff in it. Uh, and it's hard to understand because it's prophecy. We don't do prophecy very well. It's hard to understand because he uses this prophetic foreshortening, uh, which is really complicated. But he talks about the end of the temple, which is going to happen in 70 AD, and the end of the world, which is obviously out in the future. It's complicated because we bring our interpretive grids onto eschatology, things that we assume based on our reading of Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and what the millennium is going to be like and the relationship between the Jews and the church. And there's all kinds of things that factor into this. And so I said, this is a complicated uh, passage. And uh, then I ended by saying, but don't be forlorn because the things that are important are clear. Jesus will return. Jesus wins. And we can even take... Uh, from the way things turned out right? that Jesus knows the future. He talked about the fact that the temple was going to come down and it did a few years later. We have a few slides uh, of what's left. So this is the wailing wall. All those little slips of blue that are there on the the crevices these are prayers that people write out because of the belief that this is as close to God as you can get on this planet and so people take their prayers and they stick them in the wall. Uh, A bigger sort of step back from this, shows you this is the image. You've seen this. It's the Wailing Wall, the West Wall. You need to understand it's just a small part of the uh, sort of undergirding of the, of the courtyard of the temple. So if we put that wall into perspective, it, it fits into the, the grand scheme of things. Let's go to the next slide. And you see where the Wailing Wall is. So the temple was massive. And yet it's going to come down. Not one stone is left on top of the other in the temple because when it is destroyed, the gold is melted and the gold falls. Uh, It runs down the wall. Some of it gets into the cracks. So people pull every stone on top of each other so they can get in and get every last little bit uh, of gold. So I said, look, this is a hard passage. It's it's heavy. It's foreboding. uh, But there's good here. And last week I ended with the idea that... uh, Jesus wins, right? If you're going to have one takeaway, it's Jesus wins. And you can be as certain of that as you are that the Cubs won the World Series. If you watch the game again and you go through the crisis of the eighth inning, uh, you don't have to panic because you know how it turns out. We know how things end. So I want to read you just a little bit of this passage again. This time I'm going to read it out of Matthew's account. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke give similar accounts. They're reporting from their perspective. Matthew gives a little bit longer treatment to the Olivet Discourse than, Jesus, than Luke does. So I'm going to read you just a little bit to remind you of the tone and the tenor of what Jesus says when he talks about the end. So this is Matthew 24, beginning with verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only." As were the days of Noah, so will be the days, will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken, one is left. Two women will be at the grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let this house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So as I said, this is a dark, heavy, foreboding passage. But I want to suggest there are five takeaways and that it can set us up with a perspective that actually helps a lot. So, five points. Number one, history is headed somewhere, right? There is a destiny that is going to unfold. The world has a plan behind it. And for those who are in Christ, it ends well. Now, there are other narratives out there. Uh, if, you, if you subscribe to a secular worldview, you don't believe in a supernatural, you don't believe that there's anything other than what we see. Well then, that, that idea, and it's, it's prevalent today, those that subscribe to that idea say, all we know for certain about the future is that we're headed uh, to heat death. At some point, the sun will run out of fuel and everything will cool down and that's, that's it. There is no grand design, we're alone in this world, there is no God, there is no, there is no ultimate redemption, no culmination uh, of everything in a grand upnote. It's, it's just, there will be a slow fade over hundreds of billions of years. Um, when I meet people who articulate this, uh, this sort of anti-supernatural, secular, uh, materialistic worldview, uh, I want to always point out that their beliefs require faith just as mine do. Okay? At the end, we all have to make some assumptions. We all have to accept some things we can't prove. I recommended a few uh, months ago, I recommended the book Making Sense of God, written by Tim Keller, uh, to articulate that. Uh, sort of universally, everybody has thrown the book back at me and said, I do not understand what this guy is saying. So I apologize. Uh, Keller, just a, a couple weeks ago, gave a presentation at Google uh, in which he was explaining the book. And uh, so it's, I think it's, it's about an hour-long lecture. I think it's much more accessible. So you can Google Google uh, and Keller and pull up this lecture if you're interested in that. Uh, I think he more than anybody today is able to articulate uh, the idea that we all have to make some starting assumptions and uh, that, that it takes a lot of faith to assume that this is all by accident. A second uh, view that is out there, by the way, I, I also would point out, and I I, I, can't, I can't leave this out, I would also point out that I'm always surprised when I talk to secular people when they are very positive about the future and, and have a very humanistic attitude. I'm glad for it. I'm very glad for it. But it doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Uh, it's not congruent with the idea that, that there's just going to be this slow fade into nothingness. Uh, there's a, a letter to the editor of the New York Times Uh, that captures this so brilliantly. I want to read it for you. This is somebody writing into the New York Times. And they say, there are 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old with many trillions of stars and many, many more trillions of inferred planets. So how significant are you? You're not special. You're just another piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing of who you are and of what you do in the short time you're here will ever matter. Everything short of this realization is vanity. Okay, so this is a a secular viewpoint, but then, here's the pivot, therefore, celebrate life, admire its wonders, and love people without reservation. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> that doesn't follow, right? What follows if you say nothing matters we're just the sort of accidental exhaust of the random collision of space time and chance and we're here because our ancestors through red tooth and claw climbed to the top of the food chain and defeated the others then what makes sense is keep climbing keep fighting keep keep conquering other people not be nice Not love people without reservation. And I I mean, this isn't my thinking. This is Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, so many people say, there is no God, therefore be nice. He goes, no, they're still thinking like Christians. There's a a halo effect of a Judeo-Christian worldview. If you think there's no God, then get as much power as you can and live for yourself. That's what's consistent. So there is this narrative out there that says, what you see is all there is and it's gonna play out over time, but there's no ultimate meaning. There's a second worldview, there's a second idea about where we're headed that, that I first heard of about a year and a half ago, and it has gained so much traction in the last year and a half. I'm shocked every time I run across it. I ran across it again this past week, and that's the idea that we are living uh, in a computer simulation right that we are literally part of the matrix so boy billionaire elon musk the co-founder of paypal and tesla and spacex and solar city and a new company called the boring company genius at so many levels uh musk along with some of his other silicon valley um entrepreneur friends have commissioned some consultants some computer consultants to help break us out of the the simulation that we're caught in. They look at the odds that life as we know it could have happened by accident. And they say that the odds are so astronomical that you just cannot believe that. So their theory, not they don't go to the idea that there's a God who made it all, their theory is that we're part of some advanced civilization's computer game. And uh, and we've got to break out of the computer game. So uh, I want to say, guys, it, it was a movie, right? It was, it was a movie. It had a couple sequels, but that's it. It needs to stop. Uh, but there is that idea out there. There are other ideas out there today. One of them, uh, out of the East, would be the idea that, that history is on a grand arc and that it repeats itself over and over. And there is no beginning and end, there's just a big circle, and you sort of go past go and collect $200, and you just keep doing this every several hundred millions or billions of years, or however it plays out. So, in what Jesus gives us in the Olivet Discourse, there is the there is the undergirding that history had a beginning, and it has a culmination, and that everything is marching towards the end The return of Christ, judgment, and then the the ultimate elevation of Christ as king and lord of all. And that um, that is the idea that I think many of us sort of implicitly understand history is linear and there will be an end. And that's what Jesus says. And so implied in that is that this God who created 13 trillion galaxies... Is personal. He knows you. <laughs> you have value to him. You were made in his image. You have value to the God who created everything, everywhere, and you will last. A second big idea out of the Olivet Discourse is that between now and the end, it's going to be difficult. Okay? So. There's a couple of different ways it's going to be difficult. In in all three of the uh, Olivet Discourse accounts that we get, Jesus says, uh, at some point, you should expect to suffer for your faith. And in fact, uh, in John 15, he says, you know, if they hate you, don't be surprised. They hated me. And uh, we, what we see is that persecution for Christ followers started in Acts chapter 4, the church is born in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Acts chapter 4 throughout, there was a cost to follow Christ. Hasn't been one for us, but, but uh, there are people who continue around the world who suffer for their stance for Jesus. Jesus said we should expect that more as we get close to the end. And additionally, throughout the Bible, there is this understanding that we live in a world that's broken. There is pain and injustice. There is, there is oppression. There is, there is cancer and unemployment and loneliness. People hurt each other. And and he tells us that sin sort of ravages people's lives. And it breaks systems. And it, and it sets up things that are wrong. So we live in a world that is broken. All of creation, Paul says, groans. All of creation groans under the suffering of sin. And we should expect life to be difficult. And I, and I share this, I highlight this point because it's throughout the Bible, but I highlight this point in part because there are others that, that say otherwise. So there are people that, that suggest that if you have enough faith or if you are a good enough person, you can cut a deal with God. If you give enough money, you can get a deal with God where your life is going to work well. And they will promise you this. Uh, an acquaintance, not a friend, but an acquaintance of mine had a church of 30,000 down in the southeast. Passed away a few weeks ago. He passed away of cancer. He, he had been sick for some time. But he said to his congregation, oh, it's a, it's a new diet. I want to lose weight. This is all about wanting to lose weight. Even as he continued to preach a message, if you believe, we will be victorious. In every way, you can conquer. He's, While well, he's dying of cancer. Because he's he's not looking at everything that Jesus says. So yes, faith changes things. And yes, living a good life changes things. So one of the purposes of the law, and by the law I'm referring to all the things that God hands down through Moses in Exodus, it's the Ten Commandments and everything else. One of the purposes of the law is to help us live lives that are more likely to work. So the first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. So we've got an objective standard and we see that we fall short, right? We can't measure up. We can't do everything that God expects. We need a savior. This isn't gonna be about us, you know, the religious bootstrap theory where we're just good enough that God is amazed and, and we, we meritoriously get promoted to heaven. The second purpose of the law is to restrain evil. When, when civilizations and cultures will follow it, it will help restrain evil. The third purpose of the law is to help us understand the character of God and how the world he created works so that we can follow that. So if you don't lie, your life works better than if you do lie. Because if you lie at some point, you're gonna get caught lying and there are consequences. If you honor your marriage vows and don't sleep around, then your marriage is gonna be stronger than if you violate them, right? And so so there is a sense in which If we do the right thing, life works better. (laughs) But we have to understand, and I think it's cruel not to emphasize this point. We have to understand we're going to get knocked down. I am so glad that when I sort of entered that difficult series of months, first I have the injury from swimming that leads to a stroke, and I end up in the neuro ICU ward. And then my dad goes from bad to worse and is dying. And, and I can't get out of the hospital to go see him. And it was a dark, it was a dark series of weeks. I'm so glad that by that time in my spiritual formation, I had was long past the idea that I had cut a deal with God, that if I was a good guy, that I was going to get an easy life and good parking and I would be healthy and nothing bad would happen to me. So when I found myself in neuro-ICU and I finally get a little bit of clarity as to what's actually going on, I'm not thinking, well, there is no God. I'm not thinking I must be getting in trouble for something. I'm not thinking, God, you've lost control. I'm thinking, okay, God, you have control. You can do something good out of this. And I desperately need you now in ways that I haven't in the past. And that, that time was a, was, a, was a season of great, intimacy with god i i'm i mean i my prayer towards the end of it was like god i want to hold on to this (laughs) i want to hold on to this peace even as i gain some independence and abilities to function again but i i wasn't misinformed and i don't want you to be misinformed if you live long enough you're going to suffer if you live long enough people you love are going to die If you live long enough, bad things are going to happen. It's a broken world. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And Jesus highlights that point. Number three, we don't have to be anxious about this. So the world is headed somewhere good for those in Christ. It ends well. Between now and then, it's going to get bad. But we don't have to be anxious about this. Right? So in a couple different places, Jesus says this in the Olivet Discourse. Don't get all wrapped up in what's going on, right? Or you will grow anxious. And in other places, we get a similar uh, report. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I memorized that passage a long time ago because... I was anxious, and uh, I went looking for relief. So when I was young, before I came to faith, I was anxious a lot that I wasn't going to make the team or I wasn't going to get these grades or I wasn't going to get into this school or these things weren't going to happen. Having come to faith, a lot of that anxiety went away. There are still things that can make me anxious. I don't want to suggest otherwise, But, but... the longer I have walked with Christ, the more stability I've found, even in a crisis. Now, I want to say, this is not Christianity 101. Okay? The default mode is not to go deep. We don't end up with spiritual maturity any more than we end up in great physical shape. You have to work at it. And in this culture, we are becoming shallower by the day. We almost have no downtime for the, for the attention that we would give to our soul, right? If there's five minutes, we got to check email. And, and uh, we're always entertained. So the kind of introspection and reflection that we might do 100 years ago gets filled with YouTube videos today. And, and so we don't cultivate the kind of depth that can lead to stability and a lack of anxiety in the midst of a crisis. And so uh, I would submit to you that we have to work proactively at these things. Um, Thomas Kelly, a 19th century Quaker, a bit more of a mystic than I am, uh, that I'm comfortable with, but I, I like this. This is not a testament of devotion. It says, deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continually return. Eternity is in our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, warming us with intimations of an astounding destiny calling us home. We need to learn to hear that voice. We need to cultivate a deep, rich inner life to be able to navigate the difficulties that are coming. Um, and to to not be anxious, number four, we are expected to share the gospel, so if you go sort of high level and you write down the things that we find in uh, in the that Discourse, the assignments that are given. You see, well, don't be religious, and don't be deceived by people that say the world's going to end, and don't be deceived by people that say, I'm the Christ, and, and don't be anxious, and don't give up. Stay faithful to the end. You see a number of assignments. One of them that is uh, implied, and you find it in Matthew, not in Luke, is that we are expected to share the hope that is within us of eternal life through Christ. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, uh, The end will not come until the gospel has been, pro- been proclaimed around the world to all people. So this, this statement by Jesus, along with the Great Commission and other things, has motivated a lot of missionary activity. A lot of people saying, okay, I've got I to go out. So right now the church is the, is the most global organization on the planet. And in a little bit later on, uh, in a couple months, you're going to have an opportunity to help promote that. There are still some people groups that do not have translations of the Bible. The number gets smaller every day. We, as a congregation, are going to pay uh, to translate the Gospel of Luke into a, one of these languages, and you can you can pay for a verse. It's like I think forty dollars per verse, and there's eleven hundred verses, and we're going to we're going to translate it. So. So that's one issue. But here's the bigger issue. I think as a church, we don't do a very good job of this. And uh, we do a, we, there's a lot of things to celebrate. Um, we, start, we sort of honed in on a mission and vision when I started 16 years ago as senior pastor. And then I came back from a sabbatical and we tweaked it a little bit six years ago, and I said, we've got to turn up the temperature. We've got to do more to lean into the assignment that we've been given, our mission to proclaim the good news and engage in good works. And that sort of That sort of spurned some activity. So we got off the corner. We, we moved to become multi-site and opened up, uh, and merged with the church in Highland Park. It's now going and growing and thriving. And then we started the 01, which is going and growing. And then we, then we, uh, went to Crossroads and that is now, you know, paying its way, moving forward. So that happened as a result of, uh, sort of tweaking the mission. And then a whole lot of service sort of went to another level. So we next Saturday we'll dedicate the next Matthew home. Thanks to your generosity. We buy homes uh in North Chicago that are that are in distress, so we're paying twenty twenty-five thousand dollars for a home. We put about that much into it, in materials, volunteer labor, and and we turn these homes over to people who want to be part of a long-term uh, solution and, and seeing over the next twenty, thirty years, seeing North Chicago go and thrive in ways that it's not thriving right now, and so uh, we we find families that that wanna wanna be part of a of a gospel based solution going forward, and then there's the jobs initiative, and so there's twenty five men and women that are that are working through the mayor's office and through the uh, chamber of commerce and business development there to to help businesses in North Chicago create jobs. Because that's one of the things that we say, one of the the ways that perhaps, we got a lot to learn from uh, people in North Chicago, but one of the ways that we perhaps might be able to help is that there's a lot of people here that know how to, create jobs so let's help create jobs and then there's the justice center in uh that we opened in in um uh, at the crossroads campus and so we don't give legal advice but we give advice about legal advice to people who are struggling and not able to get access to the to the court system and so the goal is to pray with everyone and to encourage everyone and to help them find a way through the challenges that they're facing there are other programs, the North Chicago Community Partners, Pads, Love Inc., other things. So, so we have seen the volunteer hours heading in that direction go up. This year, it'll be just less than twenty thousand volunteer hours that that you are giving there, and that's just to outside Christ Church Ministries. We want to see other ministries go and grow and th- thrive. There are other things that are happening. So globally, we're working in Ghana and in India and church planning and helping widows and orphans get job training and get micro loans so they can start businesses and gain independence. We're we're doing church planning. There's medical care there. In India, we're doing, or excuse me, in Turkey, we're doing all that. And in Istanbul, we're also working on uh, caring for Muslim refugees and, and helping them get established and get the kinds of care they need as well as sharing the gospel with them. There's a lot of great things happening, right? And on last Thursday, I was at the Highland Park campus. We started this Thursday night service there for millennials. And uh, part of it, I've, I've joked about this before, but it starts with an hour coffee break. And then you go for five minutes and you take another coffee break. And then uh, I I'd preach for 20 minutes and then there's a, 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 a small discussion and then there's a coffee break and then you go to worship. So it's a lot of coffee. Uh, at that service. But after the first five minutes, uh, last week, two weeks ago, there was a guy that was sharing, young guy in his, in his um, mid to late 20s. And he and his wife have two kids of their own. And uh, he was talking about safe families. So they have been bringing kids into their home who uh, are from families where the parents or one of the parents, whatever, is, is saying, I'm in a crisis and I need help. And they commit to keeping brothers and sisters together and uh, to care for them. And it might be for five days, it might be for a year. And uh, they've done it three times. And they say, look, this is, this is hard work. Uh, this is taxing, emotionally draining work. And he said, but it's, it's what we're motivated to do. And they go, people are always asking us, so how much do you get paid per kid you know, for doing this? He goes, no, no there's no money. You know, you... you spend money caring for them you're getting them clothes and feeding them and, and caring for them getting them medical care they go well you get t- you get tax breaks i mean what, how, why would you do this and they go no no no. there's no tax breaks there's no money right it's the love of god for me that compels me to want to pay that forward and love and be merciful to others and i i was so excited i think yes i want to be part of a church where these kinds of things are happening it's not our program We didn't come up with this. This is just people saying, I am motivated by the love of God to serve. So there's a lot of good things happening. But I also think that uh, we are not doing everything we could do or should do to share the hope of eternal life in Jesus. And so um, more on that to come. But... um, We are expected to share the gospel. And then the final point that I'll make is that eternity changes everything. Eternity changes everything. When I was in my late 20s, just in my own sort of personal reading, uh, I was struck one day going through the Sermon on the Mount. What a bad offer Jesus made to people, basically. Follow me, and you're going to be poor, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be thirsty. You're, you're, you're going uh, to cry a lot. Uh, you're not going to have any friends. Everybody's going to hate you. I thought, that's not really a, a winning marketing plan uh, you know, for an organization. Why would people sign up for that? Well, it's because uh, what you see is not all you get. Right? It's because, it says, I am going to come with a kingdom. Right? There is eternity. You live after you die. And, and you want to be part of this kingdom now. And it's, it will change everything. You want to invest your life. And so I did some more. This really, this really gripped me. And I, I did a lot more reading. And in one article, I came across these three points that I've that never left me. Life is short. Eternity is not. Opportunity is now. Life is short. Eternity is not. Opportunity is now. If you're not yet 40, you don't really get the life is short thing. Uh, but it's coming. Um, so what I can say is you can, you can reflect back on, uh, on, on summer break when you were in kindergarten. And remember how long summer break was between kindergarten and first grade or first and second grade, right? Summer break was long. And then it starts to get shorter. And now it's pretty much like a three-day weekend, right? The summer just blitzes by. It just keeps picking up speed. And uh, our youngest son recently got engaged. We're very excited. Um, we were reflecting on that. and So this happened about a month ago. We were reflecting on that uh, a couple of days ago. And I said to Sherry, remember when we got engaged? Remember how old our parents were when we got engaged? Like, they were like Wow! Yes, we're sort of replacing you, and your life is over. And here we are; we're young, and we're going to get married. And remember that just—we just thought they were old. I mean, what were they? Like early fifties? It's just like we're older than that right now. I mean, it's just shocking. But life races by. Life is short. Eternity is not. Right? There will be an eternal kingdom. <laughs> For God, the world that works, everything we're looking for, people flourish, they're cared for, right? It's peace and love and joy. We are looking forward to that. There is an eternity, there is an eternal kingdom coming. You and I need to live today in light of that kingdom. And we need to live today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever. And when you gain that perspective, right, forget what you're looking at is it a duck or is it a, is it a bunny? When you gain a perspective that people that you see are going to live forever, when you gain a perspective right, that there is a kingdom that's coming, that that we can be a part of the advanced team for now, and that I need to spend my life, my limited time and resources, and invest them in something that is going to last forever, that changes how you live and how you think. And I think the Olivet Discourse sets us up for that. We're headed somewhere right? Jesus says, this is, this is I'm coming back. I am going to bring a kingdom, right? And between now and then, things are going to be difficult in this broken world. You don't have to be anxious about it. You should be about the things that I want you to be about. You should be proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works. You need an eternal perspective. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray for that perspective. We pray for that hope. We pray for eyes to see others as uh, men and women who are going to live forever. Pray for uh, an ability to see how we can make a difference in your kingdom now. Help us to be people uh, who have that assurance, who are shaped by the promises that you have made Help us to be people who understand that there will be struggles and trials and we don't have to be anxious when they come about. But we should be about your work and we should cultivate that perspective. Pray to that end in Christ's name, amen.